0: Today is May the 18th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. P-R-N live, that's O I V E streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the program is available on P-R-N live on the internet. I'm looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at Hank at PCRadioShow.org. After a 20-year run, Apple discontinues iPod. Apple has pulled the plug on the iPod after 20 years. The device was launched in 2001, and it became the face of portable music before being replaced by the smartphones, online streaming, and the rise of the iPhone, which was launched in 2007. The iPod has undergone several changes since its introduction featuring a scroll wheel, storage for 1,000 songs, and a 10-hour battery life. Apple said that it's selling the iPod Touch while supplies last, but it's already sold out in the United States. The company introduced a portable music player back in October of 2001. The iPod quickly came to dominate the market for MP3 music players. Apple's original iPod, introduced on October the 23rd in 2001, was the first MP player to deliver what was then an unprecedented product. Apple announced a discontinuation of the iPod Touch, and because it was the last iPod still available for purchase, its sunsetting effectively marks the end of the entire iPod lineup. The original iPod offered a hard drive with 5GB of storage space and a scroll wheel that physically turns, and it remains the only iPod with this design. It also featured a FireWire port to connect to a Mac, and it sold for $399. Apple said that it decided to sunset the iPod lineup because the iPod's capabilities are now built into every Apple device. Almost every modern Apple device supports the Apple Music device that Apple introduced in 2015, and it is also available on the web on Android devices, making the iPod superfluous. New studies suggests hybrid work is here to stay. More than two years after the outbreak of coronavirus, only 8% of Manhattan office employees are back in the office five days a week. That's according to new data from the Partnership for New York, which reported the following. 38% of Manhattan office employees are coming into the office part-time under hybrid work schedules and anticipate that by Labor Day, they can bring that number to 49%, according to the survey. The report added that it's clear, despite employers' best effort to bring workers back, the power has shifted from employers to employees. Companies have tried everything, offering free meals, free snacks, and they can't bring people back full time. Before the pandemic, more than 80% of the companies demanded that employees come in five days a week. But now... 78% of companies expect to permanently offer a hybrid model as a way to keep top talent, based on data from the survey, which interviewed 160 major companies between April 21st and May 4th. Of the 91% of employers encouraging a return to the office, 64% of them are providing an incentive to bring people back, with 50% offering social activities, 43% offering free or subsidized meals, and 13% offering transportation subsidies. As the summer looms, 30% of companies are making additional concessions for workers looking for added flexibility during the warmer months. Companies are offering perks including summer Fridays and remote work in August. It's hard to undo the inertia of the last two years when employees were able to work from home. The report added that if we had reopened June 2020, this wouldn't be an issue. But for more than two years, people got used to a new pattern, and the longer this thing went, people are reluctant to get back to work full-time in the office. Even as fewer employees are going to an office full-time, there are more employees going into work part-time now than a few months ago. Six months ago, 54% of Manhattan employees were fully remote. As of April, only 28% were fully remote. The real estate industry has been driving the return to office. 82% of real estate employees are back at work. In the legal industry, 46% are back. In tech, 44% are back. In consulting, 41% are back. And in financial services, 40% are back. Russian troops in Ukraine have shown the perils of using cell phones in modern-day war zones. The Ukrainians claim to have killed 12 generals, Russian officers, since late February, in part because the Russians have resorted to using cell phones when their communications system break down. It's not hard to geolocate someone on a phone, talking in the clear. When Russian troops cross into Ukraine, their cell phones emit a roaming signal that connects to Ukraine's cellular network, allowing the Ukrainians to triangulate where the Russians are by using the closest three cell towers. So the Ukrainian special services automatically receive information with the ID number of the device, roaming number, and of course the location of the person. Russians are quite naive and ignorant about using mobile devices, so they often call home turning on their phones and connecting to the Ukrainian stations. The Russians have also given away their positions by stealing Ukrainian iPhones, which can be tracked using the Find My iPhone app even when the phones are turned off. One Ukrainian man was able to use the Find My feature on Apple products to track the Russian troops who stole his AirPods. The Times of London reported that Ukraine was able to track the path of the Russians as they retreated from Kiev into Belarus and then repositioned in the Russian city of Belograd, near Ukraine's eastern border. Amid numerous reports that the Ukrainians can track and target Russian troops when they use cell phones, one question remains, why don't the Russians destroy Ukraine's cellular network? Well, the simple answer is, they need it. The Russians need 3G and 4G for their communications to work. They didn't set up the independent communications networks that the Americans or Chinese might have set up. While the Russians had developed encrypted communications handsets for their special operations forces, those handsets were not widely distributed among Russian troops before the latest invasion of Ukraine. And corruption could be another factor that has played into why the Russian military has proven to be so poor at using secure communications. There are good examples, although not necessarily of public knowledge, of the Russians identifying a security goal and then allocating the necessary funds. In one case, it was tracked that $10 billion was allocated and $5 billion of it ended up in Switzerland. The Russians also did not adequately plan for the invasion because They honestly thought that the Ukrainians would welcome them with open arms as liberators. The combined efforts of the corruption, poor planning, and resulting logistic problems is that there are now many images online showing Russian troops using cell phones or even the type of unencrypted walkie-talkies that you could purchase at toy stores. Looking at the Russian failures in Ukraine so far, it's tempting to think that the militaries of the NATO members Wouldn't make the same mistake. But they have. Back in November, Polish troops that had just been deployed to the border with Belarus left the dating apps on their cell phones on. Just across the border in the city of Grodno, the Belarusians knew exactly how far away the Polish troops were. And the US troops are far from immune to unintentionally revealing their positions by using mobile devices. In 2018, a company that gathers data from consumer fitness devices such as Fitbits revealed that American service members were essentially drawing GPS maps of their bases in the Middle East and Afghanistan every time they went running. Later that year, the Defense Department banned troops from using cell phones, fitness trackers, and other devices that use geolocation features. And now many officers in the Pentagon require people to leave their cell phones in the locker outside. A subsequent New York Times investigation revealed that companies can track people's smartphones inside the Pentagon by using software on mobile phone apps. The Russians' experience in Ukraine is a warning to U.S. troops about what can happen if they act carelessly. A passive way to deny the opponent information is to selectively alter or suppress the visual electromagnetic, and digital signatures emanating from friendly forces. This camouflage, counterintelligence, and signature management. Soldiers are also trained to turn off Bluetooth and Wi-Fi radios when not using them, encrypt sensitive files, and only download trusted apps. Soldiers' mobile devices can also be disabled and confiscated when necessary. The U.S. military has been concerned about troops inadvertently revealing their positions by using cell phones long before Russia attacked Ukraine in late February. Commanders have known for years that U.S. troops and forces have lost their field craft skills at hiding their electronic, thermal, infrared, and visible signatures. The adversary worked to find us. We can't make it easy for them to find us. Marines used to stay in touch with their families while in the field, and on deployments by sending and receiving mail. While modern technology has made it easier for troops to stay in touch with loved ones, it has also created a new series of problems. It's pretty simple. In war, the goal is to locate the target. And if I can find you, I can target you. And if I can target you, I can shoot you. And if I can shoot you, I can kill you. SIM swapping, how the latest cell phone hacking scam works. There is a consumer warning about a growing scam that is costing unsuspecting victims millions of dollars, and it's done entirely and unknowingly their cell phone number. The FBI in New York said cases are definitely increasing. There are a lot of organized crime groups. They're not a single actor. It's a group of people working together to exploit this. The scam involving control of the SIM card we all have in our phones is shockingly simple. A scammer will imitate their target, asking the victim's current phone carrier to switch their number to another company through the subscriber identity module, or otherwise known as SIM. That SIM card is then virtually connected to the Thieves device, and now they have access to everything on their victim's phone. One of the first things they do is take over your email, and once they take over your email, they get the password reset, and now they have your email and your phone. That puts everything on a victim's phone in danger. They go to Forgot Password, and then request a one-time passcode that will go to their device, and they can start resetting accounts real quickly and transferring money out of your bank accounts. Experts say the hackers first get personal information, like a social security number, for a potential target through a data breach or other means. Since carriers are flooded with real requests to switch SIMs for new phones, the bad guys can slip through as their victims undetected. Because there is a legitimate requirement for SIM swapping, it makes it a little more difficult for carriers to completely block the practice. With the amount of data out there and the breaches that have happened in many places, people need to be in the mindset of, how can I prevent this? And how can I be prepared if this happens to me? The FCC is trying to help by proposing new rules requiring providers to immediately notify customers whenever a SIM change or port request is made on customers' accounts. Two of the biggest carriers, Verizon and ATT, said, They're already taking action. Verizon said that it is proactively notifying customers via text messages and email before the transaction completes to ensure they are aware of the activity. AT&T said it is training employees to better recognize impersonation attempts and working closely with law enforcement. The FBI and cybersecurity experts say there are other ways people can prevent themselves From becoming victims. An easy additional level of protection is installing a two-factor authenticator app on a phone that will send a separate notification, alerting of a potential hack. Experts also say that anyone who mysteriously and suddenly loses service should contact their carrier and go to a store immediately. Intel goes big on a new type of processor. Released by Intel in 2021 was an IPU, or Infrastructure Processing Unit. It's a programmable networking device designed to enable cloud and communication service providers to reduce overhead and free up performance for the CPUs. Intel has set out an ambitious long-term roadmap for its IPUs. What is an IPU? It is much like a smart network interface card. IPUs aim to address complexities and inefficiencies in data centers that result from information overload. The primary goal of an IPU is enable users to better utilize resources with a secure, programmable, and stable solution that enables them to balance processing and storage. An IPU is a programmable network device that intelligently manages system-level infrastructure resources by securely accelerating those functions in a data center. It allows cloud operators to shift to a fully virtualized storage and network architecture while maintaining a high degree of performance, predictability, and control. An IPU has dedicated functionality to accelerate modern applications that are built using a microservice-based architecture in the data center. As a result, a cloud provider can securely manage infrastructure functions while enabling its customer to entirely control the functions of the CPU and system memory. Intel has unveiled a new roadmap for its infrastructure processors for the network and edge extending out to 2026. At its Intel Vision 2022 event in Dallas, Intel announced plans to deliver three new generations of infrastructure processing units within the next four years. The idea is to help cloud and network providers free up CPU performance by offloading functions like storage and network virtualization, which also yields various security benefits. IPUs are fundamentally changing how the data center can be architected and they are a huge enabler for the changes we see and the evolution of the data center. With the coming generations of IPUs, Intel expects to be able to help customers optimize their data center resources to an even greater degree and, by extension, increase their profitability. The chips are built on the company's Ice Lake platform and feature integrated artificial intelligence and crypto acceleration, built-in Ethernet and various other features that cater to common network and edge workloads. Intel said that the new chips will deliver breakthrough performance with security appliances, enterprise routers and switches, cloud storage, wireless networks, artificial intelligence inference, and edge servers. Viasat wants the FCC to conduct an environmental impact review for Starlink. Viasat, Inc. is an American communications company based in Carlsbad, California, with additional operations across the United States and worldwide. Viasat is a provider of high-speed satellite broadband services and secure networking systems covering military and commercial markets. Starlink is a satellite internet constellation operated by SpaceX. SpaceX. It provides satellite internet access coverage to 32 countries where its use has been licensed. As of April 2022, Starlink consists of over 2,100 mass-produced small satellites in low Earth orbit, otherwise known as LEO. Viasat asked the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission, to stop SpaceX Starlink launches. They claim that the satellites will harm the environment and need to be stopped. In addition to Starlink's superior speeds and reliability, it also set up to be far more reliable and user-friendly than its other satellite internet competitors. Its dense LEO network allows satellites to pass one another often at much higher speeds than standard telecom satellites. Compared to Viasat service, Starlink service is likely to offer way lower latency, modestly improved speeds, and significantly better capacity. Viasat uses two satellites to offer internet service to residential subscribers in the United States. Both of the satellites Viasat uses are in geosynchronous orbits. The Viasat satellites are about 25,000 miles from Earth. Each satellite is in a geostationary orbit which appears stationary, always at the same point in the sky. A Starlink satellite is anywhere from 200 to 400 miles from Earth, so a string of satellites are needed to keep connected to the Internet. But latency time is just a fraction of a satellite in geostationary orbit, a fraction of 200 to 400 miles compared to 25,000 miles. Starlink and Viasat are currently at odds over whether the FCC should approve the former's request to allow SpaceX to use its new rocket currently under development at the company's facilities in Boca Chica, Texas, to launch the spacecraft. And Viasat has taken this opportunity to raise concerns about the Internet Constellation's impacts on the night sky through light pollution. Starlink's attempts to address light pollution are inadequate, says Viasat. Viasat's filing made earlier this month is not the first time the company has attempted to point out impacts that will result from the full Starlink constellation being deployed in orbit. The full constellation will see at least 42,000 satellites operating at low altitudes in order to leverage the benefits of density and altitude to provide faster internet coverage than current satellite internet services. The latest filing reiterates Viasat's claim that the FCC should conduct and environmental review for Starlink. SpaceX is already under an extensive environmental review for its test and launch facilities in Boca Chica, Texas, and this review is being conducted by the Federal Aviation Administration, and the agency expects to finish it by the end of this month. Viasat also claims that Starlink is ignoring claims that the satellites pose a harm to the night sky and accuses the company of diverting attention by pointing out the changes that it has made to the spacecraft to improve nighttime sky viewing. Building on this, the firm accuses Starlink of indirectly admitting that the spacecraft will cause light pollution. Starlink offers higher internet speed service because of its use of low elevation orbit. This is made possible by employing a string of satellites 200 to 400 miles above the Earth. Starlink is also able to launch 53 satellites with each rocket launch. The rockets are also recoverable for the next launch. Presenting IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Why all the disaster recovery drills? This is Benjamin Rockwell and now it's
1: time to get down to business. It's time for us to explain some of the things that are going on in your business world as far as IT, information technology, and the computer systems and all of the nerds and what they do and things like that. Connor reached out to me and asked me, what is it in regards to these disaster recovery drills that our company does on a regular basis? Why do they keep chasing down these things all right so um here's the deal disaster recovery is where we figure out what we do if something massively goes wrong and sometimes, you know, there's there's business recovery plans, and that that has to do with the entire business. What do we do if we have an earthquake? What do we do if uh, the place burns down or a building burns down or, or whatever it is? That's business recovery. And then disaster recovery, now we think of those as disasters, but disaster recovery is a term that's given over into IT. And IT is a, an area which is less like that solid skyscraper and more like a jenga game you know the all of the the different blocks you stack them up and there's whatever it is uh i don't know 60 blocks high and you keep pulling one out from the bottom and you put it up at the top and you try and keep it from falling over so it workers they try to take them from the top and put those back in those little holes down the bottom. And usually that helps stabilize everything. But somebody comes along and says, oh, I need this report and I need it. I need this particular software and I need that. And I oh, I clicked on the wrong link. And then all of a sudden everything comes tumbling down again like Jenga. So I, I want you to really think about this. You want your IT department to be prepared in case that all starts to fall. Now, the IT department is fast, and we can put those things back up, and we can try and put those back up in the best order we can, and we can try and hold it up, but sometimes it's going to be an IT disaster. So what do we do? We plan for this. We prepare for this. If your company isn't preparing for this, if your company isn't planning for something to go wrong, you need to find a new job. I'm serious. One of the things that I have done over the years is IT audit compliance. And what does that mean? Well, uh, one of the things that I did was I sat down with the folks inside of our company. So I'm, I'm a friendly auditor. I am sitting there and going, okay, you need to make sure that you've tested this, that you've gone through it and you've run a fire drill and made sure that you can recover all of the information from this tape. Show me me how often you do this. What do you mean you've never done this? All right. You need to start doing this once a month. You need to start recovering a folder or a file. And I'm not talking something insignificant. And you need to place it in a particular folder, and we need to prove out that you know what you're doing. Well, I know what I'm doing. If I didn't know what I was doing, I wouldn't have a job. I mean, that was the response that I received from one of these guys. And I said, look, I get that you know what you're doing. I think you know what you're doing. Your boss thinks you know what you're doing. But the auditors that are coming in, they don't know. So they want to know that you know what you're doing, but they also want to make sure that the hardware is handling this just fine. That we've prepared and we've planned for the hardware the right amount of hardware just imagine this, we might be able to get more backup systems for you if you can show that you're not able to recover in a timely manner. We might not, we might be able to get more uh, ability for you to expand your job, make sure that you're doing a better job, better training, better at handling all of the other different things that might go wrong if we just prove that you're doing this. And then a, a little light bulb would go off. I will tell you, We normally don't do this with cars. We don't normally think about, okay, I'm going to change a tire on my car just to show that I can do it. I mean, some of us out there, we've never changed a tire. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I've changed tires for other people. We think, oh, I I, I can just call a tow truck and they'll come on out. I have been in the middle of nowhere, like way off in the middle of nowhere, And had to change a tire because I didn't have cell service. And I've driven through areas which don't have cell service. And I need to know in my car what do I do if I have a a problem with a tire, a problem with a belt, a problem with a hose, a problem with whatever it is that's in my car. The battery goes bad. What do I do? Some of those things I can't prepare for. I can't carry around extra belts and extra hoses and extra batteries and extra jumper cables and all of that. But I can do the different things that will prepare me in case something goes wrong. And that's all they're doing. That is all all that we are talking about here. So running that periodic fire drill on the recovery of our systems... Is one of the most important things that can happen in IT? If they're not doing it, yes, I already said find a new job. But if they're not doing it, is it because they don't think it's important? Or they don't have the resources to do it? That's another problem. That's a big problem that needs to be filled. Is it being done reliably? You know, there's there's all of these different questions that we have to ask again, through that audit compliance through dealing with internal auditors or external auditors or yes the company the, the guys that come along and say why is the company failed and why were you, uh, why were you involved with this how were you involved with this and things like that well, it gets kind of kind of scary at times this is benjamin rockwell back to you hank
0: thank you benjamin Google I.O. 2022 Conference, Hardware and Software Announcements. The Google I.O. 2022 Conference is the company's annual conference for developers. This year, it was held May 11th through the 12th. Google made several software and hardware announcements for this year. A first look at this year's developers conference, Google introduced a number of long-anticipated product launches from the Pixel 6a, and the Pixel Buds Pro to the Pixel Watch Pixel 7, Pixel 7 Pro, and a Pixel Tablet. None of these devices are launching immediately, but you won't have to wait long to get your hands on them. The Pixel Watch has been rumored since Google started making Pixel phones in 2016, likely even before that when Google initially launched its specialized operating system for smartwatches. Google's wearable is finally arriving, though details are sketchy. Unlike the Apple Watch, the Pixel Watch is round, there's a tactile crown, and it uses recycled stainless steel for the frame. It also features swappable bands, though these appear to be a proprietary strap system, much like Apple's Watch. The Pixel Watch has fluid animations and an improved user interface that's tappable and voice-enabled. There will be Google's first-party apps on the watch, including a Google Home app that'll let you control your smart home devices just by tapping the screen on your wrist. Fitbit is now a Google-owned company. There's integration and plenty of shared fitness monitoring expertise with continuous heart rate tracking, sleep tracking, and the ability to record personal fitness goals. However, when Google acquired Fitbit, it agreed to keep users Fitbit and Google data separate. The Fitbit body data collected by the Pixel Watch will be isolated from Google. There are two fitness platforms on the watch though, Google Fit and Fitbit. Google says the Pixel Watch will not work with iOS devices, just Android phones. There were no pricing details but Google is touting the Pixel Watch as a premium smartwatch, so we can expect a price similar to the Apple Watch. It will be launched in the fall. Google's latest A-series phones, the budget alternative to its flagship Pixel, will be called the Pixel 6a, and will cost $449 when it goes on sale in June. The Pixel 6a is powered by Google's Tensor chip, the same processor inside the high-end Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pro. It also makes the Pixel 6a one of the more powerful Android phones. The use of the same chip means Google is bringing every software features you'll find on its flagships down to this phone, including Night Sight for better low-light photography, Realtone for improved skin tones in photos, and assisted voice typing for faster and more natural dictation. There are even some new features like how you'll be able to change the color of distracting objects in your photos instead of simply erasing them via the magic eraser. The Pixel 6a looks almost the same as its pricier Pixel 6 siblings, with a thick camera bumper spanning the back and a two-tone design on the recycled aluminum frame. But it has a smaller 6.1 inch 60Hz OLED screen that keeps its cost down. There is lesser camera sensors and you get a 12-megapixel main sensor and an ultra wide, what you'll find on the Pixel 6 series. It has 5G connectivity options like most flagship Android phones, 6GB of RAM, 128GB of storage, and IP67 water resistance. It will have 3 Android upgrades and 5 years of security updates, while there is an under-display fingerprint sensor but there's no headphone jack. The 4,400 milliamp battery is also smaller than the one on the Pixel 5a. The Pixel 6a will be available for pre-order on July the 21st in sage, chalk and charcoal colors and it goes on sale July 28th. Whereas the Pixel 5a was sold only at the Google store in the United States and Japan The Pixel 6a will be available at various retailers in 13 countries including the US, UK and Australia, as well as India later this year. Google also says it will continue selling the Pixel 5a. The Pixel Buds Pro are wireless earbuds. These $199 buds have the same design as the A series, but Google has added active noise cancellation to tune out your surroundings, and a transparency mode to let ambient sounds in, both of which are powered by a new custom 6-core audio chip tuned by the company in-house audio engineers. Google claims its algorithms can tune out wind, traffic, and other background noise so that you'll hear clearer sound when you're speaking on audio and video cores. The earbuds will also support multipoint connectivity, a feature which enables them to seamlessly switch their connection from your laptop to your phone and when a mobile call comes in and then back to your laptop when you hang up. You'll never need to tap on any Bluetooth settings. The switch happens automatically. The Pixel Buds Pro are equipped with touch controls, a case with wireless charging support and an IPX4 rating for water and sweat resistance. Google says they'll last for 11 hours per charge, or 7 hours with active noise cancellation turned on. Spatial audio support is later this year, and they'll go on pre-order July the 21st, and it'll hit the store shelves July 28th, and they come in four colors. Charcoal, fog, coral, and lemongrass. Google Pixel 7 and Pixel 7 Pro will be paired with the Pixel Watch launch this fall, and the black camera bar now has recycled aluminum finish. The Pixel 7 is powered by the next generation Tensor chip, which will add improvements to speech processing, photography, videography, and security. When these phones arrive, they will come with Android 13 pre-installed. Announcing that the Pixel 7 will arrive in the fall, presumably around September-October, buying the Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pro today, would make no sense. When you think about paying $900 for a flagship phone, you want to get the -the top-of-the-line product. Google confirmed the Pixel 7 will have a new Tensor 2 chip inside, and the Pixel 7 has a refined-looking design, Android 13, and an improved camera. Paying your hard-earned dollar for the Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pro today, that will only be the latest and greatest for just a short time, and it wouldn't be a smart financial decision, regardless of whether you're worried about specifications or not. Google has made its current flagship, the Pixel 6 Pro, a no-brainer not to buy today. Well, what about the Pixel 6 or the new Pixel 6a? The Pixel 6a isn't going to be available as a pre-order until the end of July. The specifications are good enough that it'll be worth recommending over the Pixel 6 for the $150 savings, but this really only applies if it was coming out today. Assuming deliveries will start at the end of July or the very beginning of August for the Pixel 6a, the sensible decision at that time would be to wait a couple months to see what the Pixel 7 brings. If it costs $599 again and it comes with a Tensor 2 and an improved camera, And even though that's a $150 premium over the Pixel 6a, it would still be a very tempting proposition. Best of all, there's nothing for you as a buy to lose if none of this works out and the Pixel 7 is much more expensive or not that much more of an upgrade. The Pixel 6a will still be there for you to buy. There's no reason to rush into it unless you absolutely must have a new phone and that it has to be the Pixel 6a. Google has effectively made any Pixel 6 phone really quite undesirable at the present time. Everyone knows manufacturers update their products on an annual basis, and if we constantly wait for the next version to come out, I guess we'll never buy anything. The Google Pixel tablet will be available with an optimized operating system for larger screens in Android 11, 12L, and the upcoming Android 13. It'll be powered by a Tensor chip. It's designed to be a companion to your Pixel phone and it will work seamlessly with all your Pixel devices and the expected product delivery is in 2023. Google also showed off a prototype set of augmented reality glasses that offer real-time language translation of whatever the person standing across from you is saying. The glasses look completely normal with slightly thicker arms And in the video Google showed off, the wearer is able to see a live translation from a foreign language show up in the upper corner of their vision as the person across from them was speaking. It's unclear at what stage these AR glasses are, or at whether they'll ever materialize into any actual product. And as everyone knows, with Google, they make announcements, they come and go, and we don't know what they'll be announcing or removing from day to day. New Chromebook features announced at the Google I.O. 2022 conference. At the conference, they highlighted features that will be coming to Chrome OS. The first set of new features come under the Better Together banner. The earlier versions of this were Messages, Phone Hub, and Instant Tethering on the Chromebooks. Google Chrome OS will have fast peer, and Google is now making it official. As this has been in the works for some time now, translated means that in the next update or two to Chrome OS. FastPair should come with all the associated perks, letting users pair up compatible accessories with just one tap and keeping that connection synced across devices. That means you'll be able to seamlessly move from one device to the next with an accessory like the Pixel Buds with just a single tap. Then there's Camera Row and is finally on the way to Chrome OS. Google officially acknowledged that it is coming later this year. Camera Row is a feature that will allow your most recent photos taken on your phone to quickly appear on your Chromebooks phone hub section. From there you can drag and drop sharing your latest pics via Chrome OS. With Better Together, communication app streaming will bring an enhanced message streaming interface to Android users on their Chromebooks. It will require Android 13, and it will allow for a mirrored communication app window on a Chromebook to reply to and continue a conversation in Chrome OS that was started on an Android phone. This could provide a more seamless connection between your desktop and mobile setups. Finally, Google is also rendering a new app discovery service. It will be a central Chrome OS app hub that pulls in applications from all the available sources and surfaces them to the user in a clean and simple way. Using machine learning, Google will tailor the recommendations based on things like user preferences, type of devices, form factors, and computing power. Once a user finds the app they want, the new service will get them to the right place for installation, whether that app is listed in the Play Store or not. Then Google's new Android Auto interface will work with any screen size. Google's car interface app for Android is getting a new, more flexible design at Google's I.O. Android Auto previously demanded a pretty rigid screen aspect ratio. It could not handle things like large, vertically oriented car screens and would often resort to pillar boxing the user interface to keep a reasonable layout. Now, Google says that interface is built to adapt to any screen size thanks to its new panel design. Google says that there are three main functionalities that drivers prioritize in their cars. Navigation, media, and communication. And the new Android Auto design puts each of those interfaces in its own panel. Maps get the biggest, main panel, media and communication panels get stacked next to each other, and there's a combo status navigation bar. To accommodate the million different screen sizes, these items can be arranged in whatever orientation works best in the car. One example close to the current Android Auto configuration shows the combo bar oriented vertically against the side of the screen followed by a vertical stack of the messages and media panels. Then a big Google Maps panel. Another example of a more vertical screen design shows a big Google Maps panel on the top of the message and media panels, with a combo bar on the bottom where things can be arranged to fit. The new interface will be out this summer. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. High-tech foam insulation.
1: Marty Winston joins me now. Marty, I have a question for you. And and I want to go back to something. the
2: answer is 42.
1: 42. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Douglas Adams (laughs) said the same thing. Um, (laughs) Wow. Uh, So my question for you, I'd, I'd like to take you on a journey back in time Uh, we were talking about, so I've got, you know, I've got a a home that we, my wife and I purchased recently, uh, and I've been struggling with some insulation problems and you and I talked about, uh, this, this foam insulation. I can't remember
2: the the details on it. Closed cell polyurethane foam.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what is it like on something like that? You know,
2: Oh, it, it is such a wonderful solution that you can retrofit to any house or move in, to uh, have it put into a new construction if you want. Mm-hmm. Close-cell polyurethane foam is extremely dense. Yeah. And be- because it's dense, it's not only a absolutely outstanding thermal insulator, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it also blocks water seepage and stops insects and rodents from getting through. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Now, it doesn't it's not very good on vertical walls there's another kind of foam that goes there and and often you book it through the same facility mm-hmm. the, the closed cell polyurethane foam the number one place you want it is on the underside of your roof the ceiling of the attic mm-hmm. okay yeah uh, you want your attic to be a conditioned space help be the thermos bottle insulating layer before it gets to your house so abrupt changes hot cold temperatures outside have much less impact inside the attic and even less below than vertical walls where it's tough for that to support itself Mm -hmm. In vertical walls. What you want to put in is a a, a different hybrid foam. It's still an extraordinarily good thermal insulator. It's Mm -hmm. just not quite as dense as a closed cell polyurethane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we, we just had an estimate that my house is over 40 years old. Okay. Uh, and uh, we had an estimate on this. Uh, I think it's 2,500 square feet. So it's not the mansion that everybody makes it out to. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, they're they're going to be here in June. I think the total cost is around $26,000 to do the whole thing. And that includes our outdoor shed where I don't care so much about the thermal, but I care a lot about keeping the water and the bugs out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, it's it's the single most infective thing you could. Why bother, right? That's the whole thing. What's the why to buy? Why bother putting foam in?
1: Well, well, for me, yeah. I, I mean, I'm dealing with an itch issue where during the summer my office is really cold, and during this wait during the winter it's cold. During the summer it's hot. Imagine. and it's it's offset. I mean, you know, I go two yeah. rooms over. And I go, you know, I go across the hallway, basically. And, it, and it's beautiful in there it's wonderful it's the right temperature in my office it's
2: just yeah what if you could put your whole house in a, a giant yeti cup yeah, yes exactly that you know, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> things that start to average out once you've got that jacket of insulation around the whole thing mm-hmm, yeah. what 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 happens is the abrupt changes take a lot longer to happen sometimes mm-hmm. they don't make it through the wall at all. Mm-hmm, yeah. The loading on your HVAC system, mm-hmm, Yeah, less of it, spread over more time. No hard, abrupt, challenging load for mm-hmm, it to cope mm-hmm. with. Yeah, yeah. You know, ninety on this side of the house and twenty below on this side of the house. I'm I'm in (laughs) Cleveland. That's normal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds kind of scary. That's apocalyptic kind of temperature differences. But but yeah, uh, okay.
2: U.S. average, you're probably saving between fifteen and twenty five percent a year on energy costs.
1: Okay, that's that's good numbers,
2: and that starts to amortize it right now. HVAC maintenance. A lot mm-hmm. less loading mm-hmm. on the system. Yeah. It doesn't run as long. It doesn't run as hard, which means it's not going to wear itself out nearly as quickly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Made major repair, minor repairs, delayed. Major repairs, way delayed. You, yeah. you, yeah. you might yeah. be dead yeah. before you need to replace the thing. You know,
1: well, I don't want to be dead. So. <laughs> well, then don't be
2: dead. Just buy the yeah. phone. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No yeah. yeah, there
2: you go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I, I can't tell you, I mean, you know, I do a lot of homework on this stuff and I looked into a lot of the history of insulation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and that's why I asked you. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got uh, uh, all kinds of obscure knowledge about the (laughs) the house. Don't forget useless. (laughs) Uh, I would never say useless.
2: Oh, all All right. right. Good
1: because i often feel that it is <laughs> so so the, so the, what do you think is the the rough payoff time for for installing something like this
2: oh well you're going to start seeing some payoff within 2 to 3 months because of your uh, gas or right. electric bills right. going down
1: no, right no i'm 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 thinking the whole end payoff uh, you know, um like I an would, accountant you know I, this I pays for itself in 5 years
2: 10 years 20 years se- what? 7 years maybe
1: okay Alright.
2: Yeah, so and that it, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, it does enhance resale value of the home.
1: Oh, sure. I, I Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot of different things all the way along that, uh, you know, I, I read something recently. Uh, if you have fiber internet installed at your house, fiber internet will raise the value of your, the resale of your house by $9,000. Let
2: me go get a box of shredded wheat
1: it's got plenty of fiber <laughs> uh, not that kind of fiber no. <laughs> so yeah uh yeah a lot of different things the the technology i mean keeping your house updated with the latest technology of a wide variety of items is good as for now this is benjamin rockwell that's marty winston you're listening to computer talk radio
0: Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. Public Service Announcements Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri State Region. Since most computer clubs are online, you are welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Just log on to the club website for more information for more remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation on Complete RoboCore Defense. Thursday, May the 26th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is bcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group has their meeting June the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.com. Dot .org The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has their meeting on Friday, June the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. online virtual meeting via Jitsi and the website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting on June the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. It's an online virtual meeting via Zoom and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, June 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The Kingsbyte Computer Club meets Tuesday, June the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. If you have any meeting announcements relating to computing that you would like me to announce on your behalf, just send me an email at hank at Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN.Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.Live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch, and remember to do your regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.